Bum, 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 bum. Yes, it is. The moment you've been waiting for, for weeks, maybe months, I don't know. Yes, it is the live, live. <laughs> One more, even buses are honking at us, folks. We are live. We are the Comic Book Historian Podcast, live from San Diego. Guys, are we having fun? We are having an awesome time. We are having an awesome time. I am having fun. Thank you very much, Zippy. And this this is, of course, my friend Zippy, otherwise known as Arlen Schumer, America's greatest historian. He told me so himself. Arlen, how the heck are you? I'm doing great now that I'm here. Amazing. Thanks so for having me. Arlen is our special guest, and this is also our anniversary because we started all this one year ago, and look at what it's become. A big darn mess. But we love it, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah. I will tell you what to think, America. I will tell you, and the rest of the world. Yes, I'm Bill Field. I'm your host. And normally what we do is we pick a year, and we go after that year the entire podcast. And I do this with my partners in crime. Alex Grand. Hello, Bill. Great Hello, to be here. Alex. And my other partner in crime, Jimmy Jimbo Thompson. Hi. Hi, Bill. I, I just want to say, with the hiatus, I have missed you horribly. I have you, too. Yep. I mean, we, we, have, we have a bromance going on, folks. But that's another story altogether. And, it, uh, and, and it's false news, by the way. Yeah, it's, no, fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Thank it you. can also be known as a bromance, a, a brotherhood that's growing slowly. Yeah, very slowly. But over a year, we've, we've really become great friends. And I want to tell you, this, this man right here, the... the, the, the okay. God, we've got a crazy crowd here, folks. But Arlen is here to discuss 1968, but oh so much more, because Arlen, he's done it all. In fact, Arlen is the author of the Silver Age Art. Silver Age of Comic Book Art. Silver Age of Comic Book Art. Outstanding piece of work. It's one of my favorite Silver Age. It is my favorite Silver Age book, quite frankly. Come on, Bill. Yeah, I had to stop myself there. I don't know. I I don't want Stop saying one of. I'm the. I'm not one of. I'm the. And it does have a wonderful design when you flip through every page. You can feel the love of the era, and it comes out with every word and every arrangement of the pictures. You can feel the four-color love, actually, because you you get the Warhol dots and the entire experience of comics as a child. Very true. It's the first book I recommend when people ask me about comics. It, It honestly is. I go to that. As, as the top one to get people interested in the comic book past and things that have been published, you know, not in the last couple of years. That's about the highest praise I've ever heard for your book because Jim is not a pushover. I mean, I'm just saying. Arlen knows that. Yes, I know he knows that. I know he knows that. I pushed Jim over a few times. Well, I know. and Well, there we go. Yeah, well, <laughs> and here we are. So we're going to start right now with a little introduction to 1968 a la Arlen Schumer. Arlen, will you give us a... Can you give us a little rundown on where comics in America were in 1968? Hey, Bill, because Arlen has... He he is here at San Diego. Let's let him promote and and talk about what he's doing here. Oh, fantastic. And then also he has an upcoming appearance in Los Angeles. And and then we'll move straight into 1968. Oh, absolutely. Well, they're kind of connected because... For San Diego, the reason why I'm here is that I'm lecturing on 
the origin of Jack Kirby's Black Panther. Given the fact that the Black Panther now, because he's a cinematic superstar, he's in the public consciousness more and more, but I'm doing one of my lectures showing the comic book origins of the character and what's salient for today's audience that doesn't really know the Black Panther, especially the black audience that sees him as their hero in the same way Wonder Woman is the greatest female superheroic icon. Black Panther was created by the great artist Jack Kirby, but not intended to be fully masked. Black Panther, as created by Kirby, was like a black Superman, fully exposed in 1965. And by the time he saw print in 1966, he's fully masked. So how did the Black Panther go from being a fully exposed black man in 1965 to being a fully masked black man in 1966? That forms the core of my lecture in which I show through my own words, talking, and the images I show, which is why I try to brand what I do visual lectures, because the word lecture has such a negative, pejorative connotation, like you're being lectured to, but because I show as many as 700 images in one hour, you think that's too much, but the images are flowing as I talk so that you've seen 700 images in 45 minutes without even realizing it. So that's why I call what I do visual lectures. But the segue into 1968 is that in Los Angeles, two days, uh, in Tuesday the 24th, I'll be reprising the Black Panther lecture for the LA Society of Illustrators, but I'll also be able to do a second lecture in the same night, and that is about the 50th anniversary of this year, 1968, but it's about the year in comics. Because we all know 1968 is the most turbulent year in American history. The assassinations, Vietnam, the political and cultural upheavals. But what a lot of people don't realize, and even comic book fans don't realize, is that it has to be considered one of the greatest years in comic book history because so many Hall of Fame comic book artists were actually doing some of their greatest career works all in that year. And that's so true. We're going to uh, hit on that quite a bit this hour. What I'd like to know real quick is, uh, Alex, what do you think about 1968 and what Arlen's saying right now? Well, I mean, you know, as he talked about 65 and 66, there's a lot of social upheaval around that time. You know, there was, of course, the Black Panther Party, and then there was the Black Panther character. And, you know, Kirby with Stan Lee, um, essentially, they felt that there was a social force in the air, and they channeled it in a way that would essentially get their, their publishers filtering these things. You know, Martin Goodman's filtering stuff and doesn't want to rock the boat too much, but they were able to get these messages through. And, you know, who would have thought that, you know, you, decades later, it would be this beacon of light for people that just had to shine through a lot of a, a filter that happened around that time. Goodman wasn't exactly, he was like, let's just do what everyone else is doing. But, you know, Jack just kind of shined through there. And, you know, Stan kind of wanted to be hip. So they kind of pushed his character. And, and really, thank goodness they did. It, it had a huge ramification later. Well, Marvel was often called a trend, uh, a trend grabber. They're not a trendsetter necessarily, but they would go after, before they became the Marvel, before the Marvel age, they basically would grab any trend they could and try to well, turn that it Well, that was the Martin comic. Goodman of just right. whatever success will turn out. You know, Alex, you mentioned the Black Panther Party. A lot of people think the Black Panther Party came before the Black Panther character. But, oh, no. It came 
the Black Panther Party was formed in the fall of 1966 by um, Bobby Seale and um, Stokely um, Carmichael. Uh, yeah, and um, I always get to mix up with Huey Lewis in the news. It's Huey Newton. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the Black Panther was published in the sp- in the spring of '66. Now, when they interviewed the Black Panthers about why they chose the name Black Panther, none of them said it was because of the Jack Kirby comic book Fantastic Four. And back in those days, it wasn't hip to cite comic books, so they said, "Oh, we got the name because there was a." Alabama voting rights organization from 1964 um, in Lowndes County where they were trying to get black people to vote during the civil rights era. And they got their name from a university in Atlanta, Clark University. The sports team was called the Panthers. So they did the Black Panthers. But I've got to believe everybody was reading the Fantastic Four. I would lay dollars to donuts that they absolutely took their name from the superhero, but they didn't want to admit it. Right. Because back then, again, it wouldn't have been chic to admit that they got their name from, you know, a white comic book, so to sure. speak. That's amazing. And But I don't want to leave you out, Jimmy. Will you tell us what you think about 1968? Well, I might take exception to what Arlen said. How dare on, on one aspect, which is that it's not cool because I'm thinking of electric Kool-Aid acid test and things like that. There was a lot of yes. citing of Marvel Comics, especially Ditko, in, in relation to psychedelia and things like that because of what he was doing. Everybody in 68 was totally grooving to what Ditko was doing. Uh, I was listening to the underground comics people talking about it yesterday, and they were saying that they were all into Steve Ditko. Okay, but now we're talking about... I I make a point in my book, The Silver Age, which is a reflection of how comic art reflected the 60s. From a graphic standpoint, all the psychedelic artists of the San Francisco psychedelic poster school were all, to a man, influenced by what Ditko was doing in Doctor Strange, which is what Tom Wolfe mentions in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which I think was published in 68 or 66 or something like that. But what I'm talking about is that when you get the racial element involved, I don't think the Black Panther Party, which wanted to be taken very seriously by the white media, would have admitted that they got their name from a comic book. Because again, at that time, 66 was still early in the game in terms of praising comic books as serious right. and blah, blah, and blah. And as a, as a serious social I, I media. I disagree. Right. I'm just saying the racial thing is a different element than saying, hey, man, I read comic books, you know, and they're hip and Something all that. Something that I've thought of, and I th- I've heard some people mention this in the Facebook groups, though, but I've thought about it is because there was that Golden Age character, the Black Panther, which was a white guy in a jungle setting wearing, you know, there like a, a and he was basically character. wearing what looks like a stripper's outfit. Yes. But uh, I think that's how Stan Lee probably like put. I mean, I think Jack Kirby brought it, but I think Stan had to run it by the publisher first. And I think he probably sold it to Goodman as like, hey, we're going to retcon this Golden Age character that that the trademark ran out. Right. And you kind of wonder if that conversation had occurred. Well, you know? in my lecture, I go into all the past. There was more than one Panther character before. Kirby creates uh, what what he called the Coal Tiger in 1965. The sketch of the Black Panther as an exposed black man was called the Coal Tiger, C-O-A-L. And then, obviously, by the time it got published, whether it was Lee, whether it was Goodman, but also the fact that he went from fully exposed to a half mass. There's a famous rejected cover That's right. of the first issue of the Black Panther in the Fantastic Four where he's got a half mass like Batman, and that was rejected. 
according to, you know, receive wisdom, it was because they felt, whether it was Goodman or Lee, felt that the southern distributors would not cotton, pun intended, to a black superhero, especially on the cover. So the fact that he went from fully exposed to a half mask to a full mask tells you about the racism that was obviously in 1966 still prevalent. And remember, 66 was just at the dawn of the expression black power. James Brown did say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I don't think that came out until 68. Mm -hmm. So the consciousness of a black man was still in the birthing at that time. But And again, there's no comic book history. There's no resource. There's no quote. This is all stuff we as historians have to surmise based on what we call the forensic competent yeah, evidence. Exactly. Goodman is dead, you know, only Lee is left alive. And of course, if you ask him, he'll say he created the Black Panther. Don't get me started on that subject. But that's why I call my lecture the origin of Jack Kirby's Black Panther. Right, it makes sense. Well, I want to ask you real quick, uh, because we were talking before the podcast. Roy Thomas took exception with that, and I'd like you to go into that a little bit. Well, you got to remember, Roy Thomas is basically the Roy Cohn to Stan Lee's McCarthy. Sorry, but I will make that comparison. My point is is that you can't take anything Thomas says about Lee on face value because he is house Roy. Cue the disclaimer, folks. Cue cue the disclaimer. He's a writer. Come in here. Most writers that I've found side with Lee as the creator. And I, of course, in all of my research and all of my projects, I maintain, and here's where the phrase forensic comic evidence comes from. And I don't want to mean to go on a tangent, but let me just say this. There is no forensic comic evidence at all that can prove that Stan Lee had the creative capacity before 1961 and after 1970, to create a character or write a story of any lasting artistic worth. Whereas there is a mountain of forensic comic evidence of Jack Kirby before 61 and after 1970 that he did create characters and stories. So, for instance, the name Black Panther. In my research and in my lecture, I show that Kirby, who was in World War II with Patton, there was a black tank regiment known as the Black Panthers. Oh, okay. Now, I would bet Kirby was aware of that. So maybe when they said, hey, Jack, not the coal tiger, can you put a mask on him and call him something else, whether Kirby was aware of the Black Panther Party. But again, when he creates this in 65, there is no Black Panther right. Party. So how the name the Black Panther, let's not be so quick to assume Lee gave him the name or that Goodman gave him the name. Let's assume they said, Jack, can you put a mask on him and call him something else? I bet you Kirby reached back in his imagination and said, okay, I'll call him the Black Panther. Or maybe he was aware of these previous comic book versions of both a Black Panther and a Panther's. There's an Australian Panther in a full suit that looks just like the Black Panther. So my point is, I maintain this is all forensic comic evidence all weighing on Kirby's side. So to give Lee the benefit of the doubt that he could create anything, I think is wrong. I gotcha. I just want to say that... um, Arlen's, and not everyone knows this, but Arlen's very first words when he was born was, I'm going to go out on a tangent here. 
But that being you said, know, didn't your mother teach you have nothing nice to say? Don't say it. Huh. I thought that was kind of nice because I, I, not from I, my I, point of view, <laughs> it, was, it was nicer than the other things I may have said at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, another possibility is that in Tarzan there was a Black Panther tribe. Yes, and they were villains, and they were more of an Edgar Rice Burroughs type of creation. And I know that that was in um, pulp form and in fiction comic book form. And something we do know is that there are several examples of Jack Kirby reading pulp, uh, pulp Fiction. And so that is also an alternative pathway that I kind of also wonder about personally. Well, and I'd like to approach the subject that Cole Panther was rejected. Cole Tiger. I mean, Cole Tiger, I mean, wasn't rejected because it was racist. But now that we're looking back at it, Cole Tiger actually sounds very racist, don't you think? Why? Blackface. Yeah, blackface. Exactly. They used Cole. Cole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, this, uh, whether he was using coal because tigers are usually orange, whether the fact that he was trying to describe a black panther as a dark tiger and use the word coal. Listen, Will Eisner did Ebony in the 40s as a step and fetch it, you know, big lip. So listen, we can always look back and say, did the creators of the day, were they unconsciously racist, sure, sure. subconsciously racist? This could be the subject of an entire podcast. But the main point I want to make is, why are we always trying to give Lee the benefit of the doubt versus giving Kirby the benefit of the doubt? Right. People bend over backwards to try to give Lee creative credit when, again, none of the forensic comic evidence supports that. Well, and, you know, I want to be the devil's advocate here because I want to say I've always believed that Lee had, had a certain amount of... Uh, input people may or may not may want to reject or not but i really think that lee without lee you wouldn't have marvel because lee was the promotional well that's a different thing right right that's totally different but but i just wanted to put that in there character creation and brand promotion are two separate stories yes yes and what you have is you have um, a good powerful force there we can create characters and then promote the brand that, that turns into a powerful thing. You, you, the only thing is you don't want the brand to then start overshadowing the importance of the character's genesis. That becomes the Let thing. Let me just say something to that. People think, especially people on Team Lee, they play what I call a zero-sum game. They think we on Team Kirby want to give Kirby all the credit and leave Lee completely out. And some if, do. If, you, if you've read what I've written, I give Lee his 50%. And it's as the guy that wrote the dialogue, the guy that was a good editor, the guy that was a great promotion man, that is his 50% of the success of Marvel Comics. And he did have an ear to what the kids were listening to. But here's the problem. Lee was also the editor. Now, a good editor in comics often makes creative suggestions to his creative people. If you look at DC Comics in the 60s, the two big editors, Mort Weisinger and Julia Schwartz, if you know their history, they practically wrote every one of the stories that they paid a writer to write because they were pulp editors. They would give the writers ideas. They would sometimes rewrite the story completely. But not once in their multi-decade careers did either one of those editors ever put their name on a byline of those stories. If you want to give Lee, maybe he gave a good idea to Kirby, but that's what an editor does, not a co-creator. So I will give Lee, for instance, take Galactus and the Silver Surfer. According to urban comic book legend, maybe Lee did say, hey, Jack, can you have the FF fight a really 
big villain. Like a, but my point is, that is what an editor does. But what's happened is that we want to bend over backwards to give Lee co-creator credit so we will give what he might have done as an editor we will instead make him a co-creator not just a good editor well he is he is the writer though on some of level. the dialogue that's part of his 50 percent. but you see he's not happy with his 50 percent. his minions are not happy with 50 percent. they want it all and that's what I find disgusting. Now, I was talking to uh, CB, the current editor of, uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, and I didn't know this, and I, I want to say this for the record. Until Jim Shooter, Jim Shooter wanted all the editors to be editor-in-chief. Stan didn't go that route. Stan was fine with being a writer and editor, and that, that kind of opened things up to me and made me feel like maybe Stan is, is not as much the attention grabber as, as we've been led to believe. Can I just interrupt you one second? Sure. Can you stop calling him Stan? Part of the problem with the Lee Kirby debate is that we love calling him Stan, and that unfortunately... There's an endearing quality to it. There's yes, an, there is. And, and, Stan and, the man. And it lets him off the hook. He's lovable Stan, and now that he's an old man, oh, Stan, by calling him Stan and not Lee, you, you make him more personal. It, it reverts back to that Mary Marvel marching society and the happy bullpen, all bullshit that he created that was not true. So I, for one, never call him Stan. I will always refer to him as Lee. But you did, you did at once call him Stan before. It's just after years of research, saying it's shifted after that. Yeah. Should we stall, stop calling Jack Kirby Jack? Well, listen, when you talk about famous people, you usually call them by their surnames. I'm sorry. That's what real historians do. They don't start calling uh, Abraham Lincoln Abraham. They call right. him Lincoln. Jim, but but Stan, Stan is Elvis. Stan means Stan Lee. Right. Whether well, you agree the, with that. Okay, but what I'm saying is that's the problem. Right. Given the situation, ergo, we have to stop calling him Stan and refer to him as Lee. You know, it's funny. If you kind of deconstruct it a little bit, I remember when I'm watching those old cartoons in the 80s and he would narrate some of the segues, he would say, I'm Stan Lee. Like he would say the Stan louder and longer than the last name. It's a funny thing. But it also shows how strong that promotion was because it registered on this emotional level and we're continuing it for him in a way and I'm not and you know Arlen is saying that's wrong I'm just saying I do find that as an interesting psychosocial process that he did yeah, it did point, have that course, effect but, and it adds it adds to the fact that we bend over backwards to give him creative by, by humanizing him with the name Stan it makes him more likable right. and I don't like that my, my freshman college English reader was the greatest American authors of the 20th century, and they included Stan Lee. This okay. was in the early – wait, this is when the, in the early 80s, and it was the first time that I ever thought that Stan belonged in that group, and I still do because I, I know Stan. Stan's a good guy. But at the same time, I knew Jack Kirby. And that's exactly the, what he's saying is the wrong. But, but, but I understand what Arlen but is I do, saying. I do, I do too. I understand I do what too. you're saying, Bill, yeah. Okay, can I say something? Sure, go right ahead. I have gone on record with a reporter for the New York magazine that's preparing a major Kirby article that might establish him as a great American artist, not just a great comic book artist. Right. And he said, Arlen, I'm going to press the tape recorder. Just say what you want to say. And I made sure I gave him some of these sound bites, the forensic comic evidence. But here's another one I want to lay on you. 
Stan Lee has committed what I call the art crime of the 20th century. How? By stealing creative credit of all of these Marvel characters, and when you look at how much they're worth now, my point is, when you look at any other thing that might rank as an art crime of the 20th century, there is nothing to rank with what Lee has done. And that is something, I don't care whether Stan's 95 years old, and here's another harsh comparison nobody wants to make. It's no different when they find these Nazi SS guys who are still alive, and when they want to prosecute them, what do all the people say? Oh, but he's a kindly old man. Oh, give him a break. Oh, poor baby. Uh-uh. Justice must be done. What did we learn from these superheroes? What did we learn if not truth, justice, and the American way? Stan Lee committed the art crime of the 20th century, and I, for one, am holding him accountable versus calling him Uncle Stan and what a nice guy he is. We, no, we found out in a 1966 podcast that evidently Bill confessed to us that Stan met him in a bathroom when he was a kid. And okay, so this, okay, okay thank you, Arlen. Just, I mean, thank okay. you, Arlen. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> now, now I'm confusing the two of you, which I, I, is really making me... Crazy. I'd like joke, to call guys. Bill on something, okay. which is if you're going to say that about Stan and at the same time for you to do that and come on air podcast and just rip into Joe Simon at the same time is so inconsistent because you either have to have be critical of both Simon and Lee or you have to say they both have a role. Because you rip on Simon all the time. Yeah, Bill. He's and talking to you, Bill. And there's I no know. difference between those two. Okay, well, if there is a difference, tell me what it is. Okay. You know, I totally, I totally want to respond. I want to respond right okay, now. Fine, fine. Because Jim and I rarely agree. But I'm going to tell you right now, Jim is completely right. I, I need to rethink my uh, view on, on Joe Simon. No, I'm, not, I'm serious. I'm not sucking up. And he's not I'm sucking up. down either, everybody. No, th okay, thanks, Alex. But uh, I do want to say, for the record, I do have to reconsider the whole Joe Simon thing. No, you're right. I've never thought of it at that angle. And I feel like I'm a liberal, open-minded person, and I don't mind acknowledging when someone's right. right. And Jim, you're, ab you're absolutely right. Now, now uh, for Arlen, just one okay. thing with Arlen, then I swear I'll, sure. I'll, I'll shut up. Arlen, I think you're wrong, and the reason is, when I say Kirby, when I say Ditko, it's out of total and complete respect that that's who they are. When I say Stan, it's like talking about another little kid over in the corner. Stan, be quiet. I think it juveniles him. I think it robs him of his respect. Of his the fact madness. that Bushima, Lee... All the greats, Eisner, they all go by their last name. When we put Stan separate from that, instead of calling him Lee like we would all of the greats, I th think it puts him in a different box. So I think, I think Stan, Stan says, you juvenile little kid, as compared to the greats, okay. Kirby. Okay, Do we can I respond One second, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, what great artist? Whereas if we say first name, Cher, there you go. All I'll say, Jim, based on what you just said, I understand from your point of view that's your personal way of juvenilizing him, but awareness of the fact that out there in the real world, 99.99% of the people will not take it that way. Even though I understand you're on a one-man campaign to juvenilize him by calling him Stan, everybody else is making him more likable by calling him Stan. And 
thereby giving him the creative benefit of the doubt. Right. Now, now, that being said, I, I have a, another thing to add. And this isn't necessarily pushing one, agenda, one side versus another, but I do want it to make it clear. There are quotes by Gene Colan, Mary Severin. They loved working with Stan because he had less editorial control over what exactly they were doing. He was like more free about what they were doing. But also, that feeds into also Arlen's, he, Arlen's he commentary. He also did, when DC wouldn't give certain artists like John Romita the time of day, Stan did as, accept... Basically, Why do you keep yeah. calling him Stan after okay, what okay. I just said right. about so, Lee? So, so, this so, is what I mean. He keeps right. calling him Stan. No, 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 no. Because I Lee did take DC's trash and then turned it into Marvel's now, treasure. I'm, and there is a positive to that. And I do and, want to throw that out that there. And that positive is part of his 50%. There you go. As good. a good editor, as a good salesman. In other words, why isn't that enough for Lee and his minions? But you see, it's not enough. They and want him to be the sole creator. And let me tell you something. When Lee finally passes, you will see Disney Marvel embalm him as the great creator, just as they've embalmed Disney himself. Right. Whereas everybody thinks the minute Lee passes, oh, all of a sudden we're going to be praising Jack Kirby and Lee will become a footnote. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be the exact opposite where Kirby, because Disney paid the Kirby estate... It'll be Lee, the great creator. Now, I hope I'm wrong, right. but I think I'm going to be proven right. Ar Arlen, uh, one thing on that. Do you know that when Martin Goodman died, New York Times reported Martin Goodman, the inventor of Captain America and Spider-Man. Because he said that in his own promotional literature. I don't know about Spider-Man, but... And then they corrected it two days later and said he did not create Captain America. They mm. didn't address Spider-Man, but they said he did not. That was an error. And on that three did go into now, rant. And we're going to get that. Let, let, we'll get that later. Let's yeah. go into the uh, creator artistic version of 1968. Arlen, why don't you tell us more about, you know, let's see. We have a yes. lot of the Silver Age. It explodes with creativity and passion. And it seems to culminate in 1968. You have yes. Jim Steranko, you have Neil Adams. You know, you have an explosion. Let me way. tell you the rest. And actually, I'm going to trademark that term explosion, by the I way. Like explosion, I like that. Who do we have, Arlen? Okay, so in addition to the greats like Jack Kirby, in 1968, he creates what I believe is his last great work for Marvel Comics, in which he created new characters for them, which is the FF Annual that creates Franklin Richards and the villain Annihilus. That is, I think, Kirby's last great Marvel work because between 68 and 70... Kind of dialed it in. kind of coast. But listen, Jack Kirby coasting at his peak was, it's of still, course... It's still better right. than a lot of stuff, yeah. Then you have the young Neil Adams on the other end of the artistic spectrum. He's doing Dead Man, which is where he made his bones. And in 68... No, I was intended. I, thank you. I was going to have, I didn't realize that. Thank you for pointing that out. You're welcome. But in 68, I have an entire lecture called 50 Years of Neil Adams Doing Batman because it was in the year 1968, in the summer, that Neil Adams finally gets to draw Batman the way he wanted to draw him. And this is only three months after the TV show was canceled, which left the campy caped clown. Thank you, Stan Lee, for that alliteration. I learned all my alliteration from Lee. But... Neil Adams, in one single issue of the team-up comic Brave and Bold, in which he teams up Batman with Deadman, gives us the Dark Knight of today, which is the mysterious dark Batman in a single issue. Then you have, like you said, Jim Steranko doing his great works 
Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in 68. You have those great covers that he did right in the middle of the whole, the artist uh, from the 60s. I just blanked on his the name. Peter Max. Peter Max. Oh, yeah. So the sa- in my lecture, I show the same month Peter Max has one of his classic 1968 works, Jim Steranko creates one of his classic pop art covers. Yeah, that's true. And then you have artists like Joe Kubert doing Enemy Ace. Might be his single greatest body of artistic work. It's beautiful. You have Steve Ditko creating his works for DC, The Creeper, The Hawk and Dove. You've got him doing The Question and Mr. A. So a big part of my 1968 lecture that I put together before Ditko passed ends up being, now that he passed away, kind of a mini eulogy and retrospective for Ditko because in order to talk about his 68 works you have to talk about the guy that created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange so that's a kind of a happy accident that people who come to see my 68 lecture in Los Angeles will also get a kind of a mini Ditko retrospective. Arlen a couple of questions on that yeah one do you include Gil Kane as he's winding down Green Lantern because it seems like he at that point is doing what does Gil Kane do in 1968 that's groundbreaking but that, of course, didn't sell. His but name is Savage. So in 1968, spurned on by Wally Wood, who was doing Wits End and trying to self-publish, Gil Kane, one of the classic DC artists, decides in 1968 to self-publish a black and white. It wasn't called a graphic novel, but it was a kind of an annual size original black and white story about a hard-boiled private eye detective who, in the end, was kind of a forerunner of Dirty Harry. Yeah, it's true. But influenced by Ditko's question in Mr. And Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin as well. And Lee Marvin in the 1967 movie movie Point Blank. There it is, Point Blank. So, but of course, it didn't get, it was a magazine. It didn't have a comic book cover, which might have been a mistake. Distribution also. They used a painting that looked like Lee Marvin. It was very misleading. So, what do you think about if, do you think DC or independent news distribution, which was very powerful in the 60s, yes. do you feel like in any way they kind of screwed with Gil Kane on this? Because I've wondered about that. Well, with, I don't know whether with, personally it was a vendetta against. It was just the idea that it wasn't a comic book, but it wasn't a magazine. And back then, since distribution had a stranglehold on comics, if things didn't fit into their pre-described categories, the distributors didn't do anything to help remedy that issue. They just basically discarded it. So poor Gil Kane. You know, he had Savage number two planned, but it never happened. And then, of course, he goes on to do Black Mark, which met with a similar fate. Gil Kane has to be considered not only one of the greatest mainstream artists, but also you've got to look at Savage as an early forerunner of the graphic novel, yeah. which doesn't get the credit for. That's true. And, and you know, the reason Neil Adams got hired after Gil Kane... Uh, You're talking about a Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Green, right, exactly. Right. But the reason... Not that, in 68. Right. They got Neil because they considered Gil their greatest artist. And then Neil comes in with this wonderful artistry, and they thought, we will put another great artist in this book. And I've heard Neil say this himself. I don't think you got it quite right. When they were going to discontinue Green Lantern in 1970. Well, and that's part and, of it, too. Okay, but Neil Adams said to DC, listen, if you're going to discontinue Green Lantern, I'd like to do my homage. He loved Gil Kane. Right, like right. Loved right. And that's what I'm and, saying. Uh, he, was, he basically said, let me that. do Green Lantern, and then you can discontinue it. Yeah, and that's yeah. how Green Lantern, Green Arrow yeah. Right, right. Give me a compare and contrast between Hawk and Dove and Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Between what? Hawk and Dove? Hawk and Dove and Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Wow. Jim brought that up once. I thought that's an interesting comparison. 
Well, that's, that, that is very interesting because Hawk and Dove, obviously, one represented the hawkish attitudes that were happening in 68, you know, pro-Vietnam War, and the Dove represented the peace activists that were saying no, and Ditko wanted to play that out in comic book form. And, of course, Ditko ended up coming down with tuberculosis, which yeah. a lot of people don't know. Took him out of the picture for a while. See? You didn't know that. And that's why he never really got to kind of do the Hawk and Dove or the Creeper as he wanted to do them. But then 1970 comes along, and this is after the events of 68. Right, exactly. And then when they decide, how are we going to rescue Green Lantern? I don't know who at D.C., whether it was Julie Schwartz, the editor, decided let's team Green Lantern up with Green Arrow. Now, I have a feeling it was just because they were both green. Right. But Green Arrow, Neil Adams basically reboots, which was a term nobody was using then. But the year before, in 1969, in that same Brave and Bold team-up, he gives us a modern Green Arrow, the first superhero with facial hair. He represented the kind of counterculture movement, you know, that Ditko alluded to. But you see, Ditko was anti-counterculture. Ditko, right. if anything... He didn't like protesters and all that right. stuff. So Zorro, the point Zorro is, had a mustache, by the way. I'm just, I'm just going to throw that in there. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'll give saying, you that. Yeah. Was Zorro a superhero, though? Oh, heck no. yeah. Well, he wasn't so. super, but, once you but had he the was mask, a hero. He was a mask. Once he, you had the mask. mask. Yeah, yes. that's all it all Okay, it well, I will now revise and Robin my lectures. From the year 1147 or Second whatever. Second hero to have facial hair. We're not going to go back that far, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but go ahead, Arlen. No, 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 but I was just going to say, so yeah, so in 1970, when they decide, Green Arrow had hinted before in the Brave and Bold that he was sort of counterculture, but it wasn't overt. So whoever made the decision, because it was Neil Adams drawing, maybe Neil made the decision, hey, let's team him up. And then they brought Denny O'Neill in, the writer, who Neil had been working with on Batman. And Denny O'Neill was counterculture, and they went and visited drug clinics. And they really, they were guys in their late 20s that were very socially conscious of what was happening. So whether it was influenced by Ditko, I don't know if there was any direct influence, but it's more like Ditko set a precedent. Okay, there you go. Maybe open the door that comics can tackle right. what was happening in the real world and in history and show that in comic form. Just want to add one word, please. Zatara. Zatara, that's right. He was in Action Going Comics. Going back one. to Action Comics number one. Zatara. Yeah, but anybody can have a pencil thin mustache. It was okay, go team, man. Mandrake the Magician. He had superpowers. I've read some of that stuff. Okay. Magicians are a special category. They all have mustache. alert. Villain, yet supernatural. I'm just saying. Sax Romer, we love you, man. So, what I want to know now, Arlen, is what else happened in 68 that was relevant to what we're talking about? Well, I, you know, it's funny. Right. I, if we're going to do that, just one more name has to be mentioned. Go ahead. Nick Cardi, because what, oh, Cardi, was, what Cardi was doing with those Aquaman covers around that time. And Teen Titans. And, and Teen Titans and Batlash is coming up. All of that is as important as any of the others okay. we're talking so about. In the graphic that I created for my 1968 lecture, there are 18 comic book covers featured in that graphic. And I discuss each one. So imagine it's not 18 artists. 
but it's about a dozen or so artists. Nick Cardi is one of them. Now, you mentioned Batlash. Batlash was a Western hero, but he wasn't your typical Western macho John Wayne. He was a sensitive cowboy. Now, if you look at that coming out in 1968, that's a year before Midnight Cowboy. It's a year before Coogan's Bluff comes out. But my point is, it's a year before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So the idea of a, of a cowboy that had a sensitive heart a dandy, as it were. Yes. yes exactly. So once again, comics were ahead to? of the rest of the culture. But that's Nick Hardy's contribution, those beautiful covers, which I include. And then there's other artists that I didn't mention that are in there. John Buscema really came to the fore in 68 with his work on both the Avengers and Silver Surfer. He does the vision with that great full-page image of the android crying, which is one of the great images of comic history. In my book, I give it a full page. So Buscema figures in in 68 as well. Do you feel there's any parallel character growth between the Vision and Star Trek Spock? Or the Red Tornado. Now, the Red Tornado was the closest because DC, you know, it's funny. In comic book history, there are a couple things like the Doom Patrol and X-Men are both created in months of each other. Parallel, yeah. Swamp Thing and Man Thing. Now, New York back then, which was the loci of the comic book industry, you got to wonder how these ideas, maybe the guys are sitting together having lunch and the guys at the Marvel table overheard what the guys, who knows. Right. But it was a small world back then. So whenever these parallels happen, you've got to believe that one, you know, somebody might have read or heard. Yeah. Something, oh, oh, look at what they're right. doing. Let's, it was in the ether. Yeah, it's in the or ether. Or it yeah. was Vince Coletta. But I want to, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I have looked at Vince Coletta's uh, romance stuff, and I do love that stuff. I will have to. Ju- okay. I get to throw it out there. I, I call him the Pete Rose I, of comics. I have to say one thing, Nick Cardi. I don't think he gets the love he deserves because I often get Nick Cardi covers mixed right. up with Neil Adams covers because they're so good and they're so. They both had a similar vibe in a way. I, I wouldn't equate them. Carmine Infantino was the art director at the time of DC doing all their covers. Right. He was the first artist to be promoted to an executive position in the comic book industry. And you got to give Erwin Donenfeld, the son of Harry, the founder of DC Credit, that he saw that Infantino's covers in 66 and 67 were selling more than the other DC covers as they were losing ground to Marvel. So it was Donenfeld that promoted Infantino. So, Donenfeld. so Neil Adams' greatest covers, then the reason why we all think they're better than his Marvel covers right. is Infantino because so many of those great covers, and again, we don't know for sure because no sketches survive. When you look at DC's covers from late 67 to 70, most of those great covers were either sketched by Infantino, designed by Infantino, laid out by Infantino. So those Nicardi covers, which have very dynamic perspectives, Infantino worked with DC's artists like Kurt Swan, who used to be kind of boring with very medium shots of everything. He worked with Kurt Swan to get his layouts to be more dynamic. He probably worked with Nicardi, who he loved, who basically he replaced Neil Adams as DC cover artist with Nick Cardi in 1973 because he loved Cardi. But he, it was Infantino that should be given the credit for being the behind the scenes of the great DC covers of the late 70s. Absolutely. Let's give Jack Adler some credit, Joe. Oh, absolutely. Although, as the colorist, it was Neil Adams. If you know Neil Adams' history, Neil Adams came into DC and he had his coloring background from advertising art. And he basically looked at DC's coloring and said, listen, 
And he went to the publisher and he said, Marvel is getting 32 colors. You're only getting 16. There you go. And he showed DC and yeah. Jack Adler how to get the same 30 without yeah, spending more game. money. Absolutely. And overnight, according to Neil Adams, DC Comics went from 16 colors to 32 overnight. Yes. Amazing. So when you look at the great coloring in those late 60s DCs, some of it is by Neil Adams. And I worked for Neil Adams, so I know this firsthand. Neil Adams was such a dedicated artist with integrity and didn't care about money to the point where he would stay later at DC's offices and hand color some of the comics of the artists he admired because he didn't want to see their work being poorly colored. So what might be a true and, and he kind of got Adler up to snuff and Adler was a great colorist. He did those great wash covers. But let's not be so quick to assume and give, uh, once again, all the credit to Adler when Neil Adams was behind the scenes. Not, not all. Some of those Adler wash covers. They're gorgeous. And they do predate Neil Adams. Of course. But I'm saying as a Ben Day dot colorist, it's not the same coloring as you see in the wash covers. But Neil Adams showed how to get the beauty of wash tones. Some of the technical aspects of some of those Adams covers only got done because of Adler pushing for it. From my perspective, it's not Adler. It's Neil Adams making those suggestions and bringing in photography. Adler wasn't doing this stuff before Neil Adams. He could have said no. He helped make it happen. Okay, that, Neil Adams says that. But that, I'm that's saying different from giving him, once again, the creative credit. Right. Well, I'm going to call Jack Adler Jack from now on. Ooh. Uh-oh. That's true, though. We would say oh Adler. Oh, my God, no. We would say Adler instead of uh, Jack. Yeah. That's, the, that's an interesting... Dis no first names allowed. Can we make that a rule? That's, that's right. right. Schumer. No, Schumer. Have, next question. Schumer. Schumer. Next question. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Alex. Okay, so now... We've talked about Nick Cardi. We've talked about Steve Ditko. Now let's go through Steranko. Okay, so the magician's artist. Tell us about him. Okay, Steranko was called the Jimi Hendrix of comic art back then. Because if you know about Hendrix's career, he appeared like a meteor out of nowhere, seemingly. Even though, of course, he had a background. But he bursts on the scene in the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. And, of course, dies in 1970. Now, Steranko didn't die, thank God, but he left comics in 1970 after producing, like Hendrix, a relatively small body of work, but in converse proportion to its enormous influence, a la Hendrix. Right. And like Hendrix, who took the guitar and added all these effects that nobody ever heard on the guitar, Steranko, like Neil Adams, because they both came from advertising careers, and by the way, comic book art has only ever been elevated when artists bring in outside influences. From the writing point of view, the reason why the English writers like Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman brought a revolution is that they were well-read writers of things other than comic books. Right. So when you come into comic books with other influences, you elevate the medium. So Steranko, like Adams, coming from advertising, being a magician, he was a rock and roller in the late 50s. He could draw. He could design. He knew type. You know, Neil Adams, as great as drawing is, didn't know type like Steranko knew type. So when you combine what Steranko was doing with special effects like Zipatone, yes. which to advertising artists was no big deal, but nobody in comics had used Zipatone. They used it in comic strips, but comic people didn't know anything about comic strips. So all of these things that Steranko brought, and he was the first writer-artist in mainstream comics at a time when Stan Lee dialogued everything, but he allowed Jim Steranko in late 1966, 
early on to write and draw his own material, which was unheard of. Right. So because of that, the books that Steranko did in 68 was maybe his peak year. Yeah, and it was like pure love coming from him to those issues. And again, these guys were getting paid $20 a page or something. Right. I mean, all of these guys yeah, they had better things that to we're do, money talking wise. about, they all did it for the love of the for medium. For the love of the medium, absolutely. But I do want to interject one thing. Jim Steranko only did 27 comic book stories. That's my point. He, I mean, 27, and yet he's constantly ranked as one of the top 10 right. because comic they, artists of all time. And you know what? Neil Adams seems to belittle him a little bit in the sense that he doesn't recognize all the other things he brought to the art form. That surprises me a little because Neil normally uh, seems to know what, what's going on, but I would, I would put Steranko up there with Neil. Well, he honestly. is. Yeah. Listen, Neil Adams and Jim Steranko were the twin gods of comic book art in the late 60s. And let me tell you something. I am very lucky to be able to say that I'm probably the only person, plenty of people worked for Neil Adams at Continuity Associates, who are now a who's who of comic yeah. history. Bill Sienkiewicz, right? Well, he didn't actually work at Continuity, but he kind of passed through. And you worked there? And I worked there. Yeah. So, but for but, a while. Six two years. years. For oh, two, two years. years? Okay. But my point is, is that continuity was like a school similar to Joe Kubert's school. The Joe Kubert school. It was a commercial arts school. Or the Bernd Hogarth school. So what I wanted to say was I'm very lucky and fortunate to maybe be the only person who not only almost worked for Jim Steranko, but ended up working for Neil Adams. And if you had told me when I was 12 years old in 1970 when they were the twin gods of comic art, Arlen, one day... Jim Steranko will ask you to work for him, and you'll be working for Neil Adams. I would have had a 12-year-old adolescent heart attack right there. <laughs> Can I ask a question just to move on to a, a slightly different category? And this goes back to your Silver Age book, but also to the discussion we're having. Wally Wood. And have you ever gotten criticism for not including Wally Wood? And is that criticism deserved, or do you have a good explanation? You mean in his Silver Age book? Criteria was, I remember asking you about John Romita, and he said, well, he'd have to do two things, and he did. He did Thunder Agents, and he did Daredevil. Romita did Thunder Agents? No, 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 no I'm talking about Wood. Because okay. Romita, Romita was excluded for that, but, so then, but okay. Wood does so fulfill that criteria. why did I not include Wally Wood? Why did I not include John Buscema? There's a chapter called More Masters in my book that features Kurt Swan, Wally Wood, Murphy Anderson, Nick Cardi. Why do I always forget the f Wally Wood? Wait, did I say that already? Whatever. There's five artists. So that you could okay, have included, so but did not. Okay, so number one, my, original, my book is 192 pages. My original proposal was a 300-page book, yeah. which would have included all these guys and given them the chapters they deserve. Yeah. But when I told my agent at the time that it's a 300-page book, oversized, full color, she looked at me like I was crazy, and she said, Arlen, no publisher is going to publish that because it would be too expensive. As it was, my book was $50, which was right at the price point of being too expensive. So the hardest creative job in my book was to edit down from 300 pages to 192. Now, if you can imagine, that meant every single page and every single artist who made it had to pass through that editing process. And what I ended up using was... If you take Gene Colan, for instance, Gene Colan only has eight pages in the book. He was the last artist to make it, and he ranked over Romita, in my mind. He ranked over Wally. Why? 
because Colin, in his Silver Age Marvel career from 66 to 70, did four almost definitive versions okay. of four major Marvel characters, Submariner, right. Iron Man, Daredevil, and Doctor Strange, okay. which coming after Ditko, you can almost put Colin Palmer's Doctor Strange, maybe not on an equal plane with Ditko because he's the original, but Colin's Doctor Strange... It's a revelation. I mean, I it's love it as much as I love Ditko. So my point is, Romita, for instance, really only did Spider-Man. But now when you get to Wallywood, okay, yes, Wallywood did Thunder Agents. Yes, he did Daredevil for three issues or so. But... Captain Action. And Captain Action. While he was... In the same way, the great Silver Age artists also did great works in the 1970s. Joe Kubert did Tarzan. So why I left Wallywood out was because, A... His 1950s work, if the aliens are coming down and they have room on their spaceship for one bit of Wallywood work, right. are you giving them Thunder Agents? Are you giving them Daredevil? And are you giving them whatever he, our Captain Action? No. You're giving them his science fiction work in the 50s you're, for EC. You're giving him. So sure. my point is, and then here's the other criteria. Why did Kurt Swan not be a chapter in my book? Why did Murphy Anderson not get a chapter? And you love Kurt Swan. And I love all these guys. The re my criteria, again, in eliminate and coming down was if these guys already have scholarly books about them, I'm not going to include them. At the time, Gene Colan did not have a scholarly book about him. Right. Kurt Swan did. Murphy Anderson did. These other artists on that. Nick Cardi had a book about him. So my point is, that was my criteria. While it's not technically fair, it's because I had to... You know, it's like every wedding, you have that wedding list where you're paying $150 a plate. Yeah. Not all of your friends are going to make that A-list. And I a guarantee analogy, you, actually. everybody listening to that's this that, really that's analogy. married knows they had the big fight with their wife or spouse over that wedding list. And, you know, I want to invite my boss. No, he shouldn't be in there. What about so-and-so? Well, it was the same thing with my book. I couldn't include everybody. So the decisions I made, which I couldn't really explain in the book itself, but I'm telling you now that all those artists are great, but... For the criteria that I self-created. And you know what? Murphy Anderson, who used to like me, he resented the fact that he was not a chapter in the oh, book. Oh, really? He knew about And basically, about I used that. to have a nice relationship with him. I interviewed him for the book. But once the book came out, now, why didn't he get a chapter? Because in the Infantino chapter, almost every piece of Infantino work was Anderson, by Anderson, hey, by, and, and, who and, I give credit to. So, like I said, all these guys deserve their own chapters, but... It was just the case of economics and space. All right, can I can I ask you yeah. a question in relation to that? If you had to name the five greatest Marvel Silver Age stories of the time, and obviously the Spider-Man or thirty-three, Fantastic Four, probably the Galactus trilogy, wouldn't Daredevil, Submariner issue be one of the the That's five yeah. single issues? That is one of the great that was single great. issues. And, and that would be why I would have an issue with that, because that defines the Marvel Universe morally in a way that I think no other does. What do you mean by morally? Just like the Spider-Man issue, with lifting up that thing. Daredevil being dragged by that billy club told me what Marvel comics were. Right. That's true. Okay, but again... Fighting against all odds. One great issue was not the criteria to make it as a chapter. 
I get it as a as a as a comic reader. Right. It means okay. everything. But that listen, issue. That's why I'm well, a lawyer today. Murdoch? Let me address Thunder Agents. As interesting as Thunder Agents was, while some of the art was good, Hollywood, you're not going to not like Hollywood. But name one great Thunder Agents story, and I'll wait. Good luck. Iron Maiden. Okay. The death of Menthor. Yeah, it's like a breath mint. Menthor. And he's like a man. Again, you're talking about one or two stories for a whole company that lasted three years. Right. I'm sorry. Thunder Agents in comic book history terms is more or less forgettable because while some of the art was decent, none of the stories were memorable except for one or two. So that's my indictment of Thunder Agents. And, right. and to go back just a little bit, I want to uh, make sure that we mention that there is a wonderful book about Gene Colan now, and by, now. by my well, by my brother Tom Field. He's not my t- brother, but we're friends, and we're both outstanding in our field. Go ahead, Fields, Bill Field. No, there's no way. I know it's a joke. Bill Field of I Dreams. Know. I know Bill Field of Dreams, but we call him Bill anyway. Let me just say about Gene Colan. When my book came out in 03, 04, it was before these other books came out, and he only had eight pages, but I have a quote from Gene Colan after he got his copy of the book that he said, those eight pages Arlen Schumer did of my work are the greatest things about my work that have ever been done. Wonderful. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty impressive. To quote... Spencer Tracy on Catherine Hepburn, when somebody said, what do you see in her? You know, she's a frail nothing. And he goes, there ain't a lot of meat on them bones, but what's there is churse. Hmm. What, is that? What, what does churse mean? That's like a New England accent for choice. Chowder. As far as uh, the Silver Age culminating in 68, we've gone over Stranko, Cardi, Ditko. We've gone over Kirby. Gil Kane. Um, we've gone over Gil Kane with uh, his name is Savage, especially, and Neil Adams. So who else would you guys like to talk about? Well, let me segue, because you mentioned Romita before, and also Gil Kane with Savage. The other thing I spotlight was the two issues of the black and white Spectacular Spider-Man that came out. With the magazine? With painted covers. Those are beautiful. By Romita. Romita painted one, and then he drew the other that a paperback illustrator painted over. But those were very important at the time because unlike Savage, which none of us ever really saw, I'm assuming, but we saw Spectacular Spider-Man, that was the first time that many of us saw our favorite superhero kind of painted. Right. You know, and that was revelatory. And the fact that it was a magazine, but the first issue was in black and white with gray tones. And for whatever reason, the sales reports, the second issue was magazine size and full color. And then it disappeared. But you have to see those two magazines as the forerunners of the later Marvel magazine empire that they created starting in 1971 with Savage Tales. So I consider those coming out in 1968 as historically important. Right. And, and, uh, and as we know, Martin Goodman had a whole magazine branch, but to actually incorporate Marvel characters into that line as far as publishing and distribution, you're right. That is essentially precursor to those 70s Curtis Circulation magazines, right? Yeah. And I'm going to throw this in there. I don't believe we've given the late, great Steve Ditko enough time on this podcast. I would like to delve into Steve just a little bit more. As far you know, let's talk about early 60s. You know, his creation of Doctor Strange, 
tell us what your impression. Those are just incredible issues and took comics to a whole new level. It, it was a graphic, sequential narrative. Just collecting those is one gigantic graphic novel with a beautiful beginning and ending. Tell us your impression of Steve Ditko's style during that time. Well, I think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast about the fact that his otherworldly dimensions of Doctor Strange totally influenced the entire San Francisco psychedelic poster school. Every one of them said, yeah, I was influenced. And like you said, Tom Wolfe mentions him in Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test that Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest and really created the psychedelic 60s by bringing LSD from being used by therapists in experiments to the wider audience with the Grateful Dead. And that's how the 60s, as we know it, began. But Wolf quotes him because he went on the Merry Prankster tour bus and he said Ken Kesey was in the back of the bus reading Doctor Strange comics and all the Marvel characters were festooned on that magic bus as it drove across America in 1964 dousing the country with then legal LSD. And Tom Wolf made an appearance in Doctor Strange. So we need to In the comic, that. yes. Yeah, by, later by on. Sure. Exactly. Sure. But it's funny, when you look at Ditko's otherworldly dimensions of Doctor Strange, he was really doing what I call dime store surrealism. I don't know whether Ditko was that versed in surrealism itself or fine art. I don't know if anybody I, knows I, for I, sure. I doubt it, but yeah. You never know you what You don't Ditko. know, but you don't know. Let me just tangent for a second. I'm currently in an MFA program, and I had to learn the history of illustration. And one of the illustrators from the 1940s, maybe, 1950s, was an illustrator named Cole Phillips, who I had no awareness of, because I don't really know the history of illustration like I know the history of comic art. And Cole Phillips was known for drawing figures and blending their foregrounds into the backgrounds. And I looked at Cole Phillips and the famous Ditko cover of, Doc, of Spider-Man in black, where you only see the outline of his red suit. The Molten Man And I guess the Molten Man. Right. All of a sudden I said, could Ditko have been paying homage to Cole Phillips? Was he Quite aware? possibly. Now, He's a New York illustrator, Ditko. I'm sure he was aware of things. But again, the problem with comic book history is it's sad. We don't have so much documentation that other historians in other fields that were more respected where they kept records of these things. We don't know these things. So was Ditko influenced by Cole Phillips? We don't know. But back to my dime store surrealism, what I mean by that is that when you really look at what Ditko was doing, there was almost like a high school sketchbook quality, like his idea of other dimensions was very literal in a way. You know, he drew jewels like in a kind of a yes. conga line. And to me, you look at that stuff, and that's what I mean. If you look at what the Surrealists were doing, Ditko was doing, when I say a comic book version of that, I mean that not necessarily in a pejorative sense, but it's just funny how when he did them in comic book form, they became a new thing when I think from his point of view, he was just trying to do his idea of surrealism, which, like I said, was very literal. Sparkles in the background. You look you at go. those things. They're very fanciful and almost naive. But very like Dali. outsider art. But very Salvador Dali. Which, I would disagree in, in some way. Okay, go ahead, I Joe. would say that it's Taranko 
that does Dolly and does surrealism in the way that art. Well, more literally. Much more literally. Oh, oh absolutely. That, that we even have melting clocks. That he distills it. Didco distills it into something comic True. book exactly like Arlen is saying. Steranko takes it more from the original source. Absolutely. But, and, and it's why I, I refuse to believe that Steranko is not the god of comics that he is because he took those things in. You didn't but, but see that. Saranko from, is. Why do you keep saying Saranko's not given the credit? Well, he is considered well, no, by other professionals. Can we go to one more sixty-eight? Just sure. For a please, please. Otherwise, yeah. we've just go screwed up. Right. Nobody has said you could. You were talking about painted covers and painted things. We have to mention Frazetta because Frazetta is a key to that moment. How so? Jim? Yeah, but he's not I'm a comic book artist, so I don't include him. How is he not a comic book artist? Well, and creeper, creepy, and eerie. Frank Frazetta turns everything as far you as about stuff, the covers or did yeah. He? Well, I mean, obviously he had done earlier interior, but he does do interior in that first issue of Creepy. But I'm talking the covers visually that changes comics entirely. Why? Yes, it, I think it Hold does. Hold on a too. second. Hold on. Why? Because of the power and the force of those paintings in terms of what it does, it's one of the things that moves us into Conan the Barbarian and the Bronze Age. He's almost a gateway drug to a different... As a okay, but that is, Amen. When you I talk agree. about the end of the Silver Age and different things, Frazetta is one of the ends of the Silver Age. And he moves us, transitions us to the Bronze Age by the power of those covers. Something I don't far believe, greater, I don't something believe far he greater. belongs in the comic book discussion. I'm sorry. Well, that's interesting. He belongs yeah. in the illustration subject. you got to remember, like Norman Rockwell, Frazetta was always considered by the fine art world as just an illustrator. But Creepy's a magazine. And the point is now... just as far, It's still comic art, but it's a comic magazine. If you said, what is Steve Ditko's greatest stuff? Oh. Creepy and the Eerie stuff, because of the wash tones and different stylistic right. experimentations, that may be Steve Ditko's greatest stuff. That's debatable. There's a lot and, of And as far as comic art, if we're going to use that term, that generalizes to include the comic magazines, right? So, yeah, but I'm not including because I'm not buying that Steranko's a comic artist. I'm sorry. Wait, what do you mean Frazetta? Frazetta. I mean Frazetta. I'm not and, buying him, especially I, in this discussion. But, but I don't see Frazetta definitely... in 1968 being any kind of an influence like I'm talking about these other guys. Boy, I, I would disagree with you well, on that. Well, not only that, but Jim, I'd like to add the Within stuff that Ditko did, not to mention the fact that Mr. A was created for Within, which was all black and white in 1969. And that, 67. He's created. Yeah, Mr. A, 67. 67? 67, yeah. okay, not 69. Within no. number three. I apologize. I own it and I have it in my room here at the hotel. So, yes, I agree. I thought the age was different. But what I want to say is, is that Ditko, from that point on, became his own man. He became a guy that was doing comics with his own voice that very few other people were doing. Right. And it's because he had this Ayn Randian position that creators deserve to be recognized for what they're doing. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ditko. This is the year of his death. And a little highlight on his life from your perspective from an art historian. And tell us your um, personal story but, with him as well. But 67 is a perfect segue to him after his tuberculosis to transient into like his fanzine phase where he was essentially in the 70s putting a lot of his work into fanzines 
and, and publishing, and his, publishing own his own Mr. kind of stuff. And then, and you stuff. know, of course, you have the 80s where he did some stuff with Marvel, like Mr. Universe and all that stuff. But, you know, give us kind of your rundown on the 70s and 80s Ditko and then your own impression of Ditko and your reaction to his death. Listen, I love Ayn Rand, so I understand her. I know why she's loved, and I also know why she's hated. But, you know, you got to do something right if you're equally loved and hated. But when I look at the influence on Ditko, unfortunately, while I love Mr. A and the question, his own comics became very harsh and very polemical and very strident. And, and I almost compare them to when Shelley Duvall discovers what Jack Nicholson is writing all that time. If you look at Ditko's comics, you know, in the last 15 I'll or 20 no years, play, yeah, they're very strident and a little tough to read. And again, I get his whole thing, but I hate to sound like a fanboy. I wish he went back to Marvel and did Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. But I respect, listen, in this day and age where the word integrity has lost its meaning, the very idea that Ditko refused the safe way out for a career. He could have gone back to Marvel and done Spider-Man Doctor Strange. I think guys at Marvel were dangling a lot of money. He refused. The urban legend is that after the first Spider-Man movie, the movie studio came to him with a royalty check that they wanted to give him. Who knows how much money with that? And Ditko basically refused it because he That's said... That's not true. That is not true. I don't have a computer in front of me, so I can't Google it. But I've heard in recent days from several friends that were close to Ditko, that he always cashed the check. That doesn't mean he cashed this check. The story I heard was that he said to the studio, I don't deserve this because I did not own Spider-Man. I was a work for hire, and therefore take your check back. Now, again, because of comic history, there it is. We don't know for sure. Now, I did meet Ditko in 2004. I don't know whether I asked him that because, again, when I met him, I think I had an out-of-body experience that I was talking to Steve Ditko. Because you remember very little but of what I, happened, right? But I do remember, no, this is in 2004, is he loved my Silver Age book. He gave me a written blurb, which for Ditko was so uncommon that he would ever promote anything. But he gave me a beautiful written blurb. He that, never did that, and that's wonderful. Bill, just for the record, you are sitting in front of three computers, just pointing out. So go for it while Owen talks. Uh, okay. Prove what you said you can oh. do it, so Arlen, okay. keep, keep going. Oh, keep going. Okay, so Arlen, now you reacted to his 70s work as somewhat a harsh statement. What about his 80s work? You know, he did ROM, he did, you know, Captain Universe, Speedball, right? What do you think of that stuff? And I know we don't talk about it much, but I, I'm just curious from you your know, perspective. I remember looking at all that stuff, but, you know, I mean, listen, did I buy any issues of ROM because the great Craig Russell was inking Ditko? I might have, but, you know, in the end, it just wasn't worth it. Okay, so in lieu of what we usually do at this point, which is our, our raves or our rants at the end of the program, what I want to ask Arlen, and then let's all do it, is what is the single issue that meant the most to you of this period in the 60s and the Silver Age that made the greatest impression on you, and why? And I'll preface it by saying it's by one of my least favorite artists, which is really a testament to the idea that a great story can save bad art. And it was a Ross Andrews story, and it was a Batman Brave and Bold team-up issue with, of all incongruent team-ups, Adam Strange from the future. Well, he's not from the future, but 
the point is, here is a team-up story with Batman and Adam Strange, which right away it seems like, what kind of combination is that? And what is the story about? Something about Adam Strange discovers while he's going on the Zeta Beam, he goes into the future and he sees a headline, Batman Dead. And he goes back and tells Batman this, and the whole story, written by Bob Haney, a much maligned DC artist because he didn't pay attention to continuity. But we remember Bob Haney's stories. Why? Because the guy wrote great stories with beginnings, middles, and ends, which a lot of young writers in this day and age of Brian Michael Bendis taking five issues to have one conversation. I'm exaggerating. But Haney was an old-school DC artist who told complete stories. All those great Neil Adams, Brave and Bolds are all Bob Haney's stories that Adams basically autoured into those great issues. But the stories were great. And when you have great stories with great art, of course, we remember those. But this one particular story, which followed those great Batman, Neil Adams, Brave and Bolds, I just remember... One moment at the end of the story where Batman meets Alfred and Alfred thought Batman was going to die because of this newspaper headline. And as the story progressed towards the end, Alfred sees Batman alive. But because Alfred can't reveal there were other people around that he knows Batman is Bruce Wayne, Alfred says to Batman something like, well, nice to see you. And you can see he's shaking off a tear. Now, I remember that to this day. I remember reading that story and how I understood that little subtle gesture that Alfred was crying because he was seeing Batman alive, but he couldn't reveal it. So he just said something nondescript, but Batman knew what he was talking about. And I, as the reader, got that. Now, it's interesting. All the stories we've mentioned all involve crying. Now, even though it's a canard to say, oh, it's a tearjerker, but as a creative person, being able to bring an audience to their tears is not something that should be sloughed off, especially in a two-dimensional flat medium right. with not live it's actors. Powerful. The Superman story, the death of Superman, where at the end, Supergirl's flying in the panel and seeing the ghostly image of Superman in the sky, and she's shedding a tear and says, I will always remember my cousin Superman. I was 10 years old in my grandmother's apartment in the Bronx. I remember every detail, the chair I was sitting in, when I shed tears, feeling exactly how Supergirl felt. Now, for an artist, Kurt Swan, it was great, but still, it was the story, and Swan brought it to life as illustrators are supposed to do. We're supposed to be slaves to the text. If the text says Supergirl's crying, you've got to draw that to make us feel what Supergirl is feeling. So the vision shedding a tear at the end of that great vision story. Even by an December. android can cry. Right. Yes, no. but my point is we must not underestimate we as creative people, it's all about making other people, our audience, feel something. And to get people to feel something is an amazing achievement. Yes. Okay, I'm going to throw this out there. In no other comic did the entire team die as far as I'm... I, well, later they did with the uh, Squadron Supreme. But Doom Patrol 121 made me cry as a child. They all died. And why? They sacrificed themselves for 
an entire island, an American island, but for an entire island. Even though it was a small count, they still thought it was the greater good that four died yeah. for the hundred. And that brought home the entire superhero antithesis of what they're out to do, and that's to help people. Right. And I loved that. as a ch- I was 11 when I really reread that, and I cried. And I told my mom, they killed all these guys. And my mom goes, they don't do that in comic books. And that made me realize... That some comic books will go there. Some comic books will make that connection to people where they care when they anything happens to them. Right. Especially my first fanboy letter to DC Comics. I was nine years old in 1967, and I wrote to DC because they killed off Feralad, my favorite Legion of Superhero, and that prompted at eight years old my first letter to them. He was. <laughs> He was just Jim Shooter yeah, hands is, DC their Iron Man knockoff, and Jim Shooter kills him off. He wasn't an Iron Man knockoff. Yes, he was. No, Very lad. He had the power of iron. Iron Man is a guy in a metal. Okay. means iron. And lad means man, right? He was Ireland, Jim Shooter Ireland. trying to give DC their Iron Man. Right. Okay. And it was Feral Lad, and they killed him off. One of the early African-American heroes. Okay, Jim Shooter claimed he wanted to make him black. And we don't see his face. Right. But that doesn't we mean saw he his was brother's black. face and his brother was white. Although he could have had a different father. Same. Why do you remember the only Thunder Agent story is the death of Menthor? Because it actually had some emotion in it. Okay, killing a character might be considered a cheap tactic to get your emotion. But the point is, is it is a flat two-dimensional medium. So to get the emotion through about anything is an incredible creative feat. But the reason why Menthor was powerful and is because he was essentially not a true Thunderage. He was a spy, and then he redeemed himself by sacrificing himself because he had a change of heart. And, and that was a re- powerful story. But that's what we remember. Now, I do a lecture called Christ in Comics, which is all about the Christological aspects of all the superheroes, right. starting with Superman. For Jor-El so loved the earth, he gave his only begotten son with powers and yes. And what do they all share in common? The love for the people they're trying to protect. Their willingness to sacrifice themselves for the greater good, for the people. Sure. And I do a whole lecture on that. So the death of Menthor, the death of Superman, all these stories we're talking about and all have Christological aspect. Feral, they all sacrifice themselves. Okay, Jim, I would like your emotional, lack for a better term, rant. Well, it's, it's not a rant, because as I said, we're not doing rants and right. rapes. We're doing your favorite story that right, moved right. us. Oh, your favorite. So, right. so Go what, I, what I'm going to say with that is nobody dies in the issue that I'm going to say. It's Avengers 4, and Captain America comes back to life. Aww. That's the one that, for me, means the most, because to me... That's the launching of the Marvel Age in a certain era, in a certain way. And you're not alone. A lot of people think that, and I, I, I want to know why. And, and why did Kirby bring Captain America back? There's a lot of reasons for that. That ha- And I would not say Kirby brings him back. I will say Stan Lee brings oh. him back. Oh, how dare you? No, and I, how I'm, dare I'm, you? Arlen is walking off the set. That's what, not, where is your evidence for that? Strange Tales. And what does he say? He brings him back. 
Kirby telling Stan Lee after Kennedy gets assassinated, he says, we got to bring Captain America back. Kirby was urging Lee and Goodman from the late 50s, we should bring back our superheroes. This isn't exactly what I'm, I'm giving you the rant to end the show. I am really surprised and appalled at how guys who should know better continually bend over backwards to give Stan Lee credit where there is no forensic comic book evidence to prove the guy could have created a single unique or memorable character or story. And yet there is a mountain of evidence on Kirby's side that he was the progenitor. Captain America was his character. Jim, I thought you said there were no rants. I was this about week. to say this is why I said we weren't doing rants ever. <laughs> Are you going to say Stan brought Captain America back? He just did. I think I did. Yeah, Stan, I think my point. Stan. 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 Uncle Stan brought Stan Captain the man. America back. <laughs> Stan the man. But Strange Tales in the Human Torch story is where Captain America comes back as a test. Okay. And, and who drew that? Larry Lieber. Uh, no, actually, Jack Kirby. Yeah. Oh, gee, Jack Kirby drew. You don't think that's Kirby's story, that Lee dialogue? Why are you, how dare you claim oh, wow. that it was Lee's idea? Where do you come up as a historian making specious claims with no forensic comic evidence to back it up? If you don't get a how dare you from Arlen, if you're you, not doing your job. If you think that Jack Kirby could bring back Captain America without the... It doesn't mean it wasn't his idea. He brought a lot of ideas that they sometimes accepted or rejected. But Kirby was an idea man. Captain America was his character. He was affected by Kennedy getting assassinated. He said, we need a hero. And he said, let's bring Captain America back. That's not Stan Lee. Okay, then I would like to change. Okay, but Stan Lee dialogued the story, so that means he must have wrote the story. Arlen has convinced me that my entire childhood was a falsehood. Congratulations, I, Jim. Jim is not for like going along with the herd. Jim is not that guy. My I'm favorite story was, was Crypto the, the Superdog, the one where he goes to the Legion of Superheroes into right. the future. I'll take it back. Please stop yelling at me. <laughs> you asked for it. As I was saying, Avengers 4, because Captain America comes back, and it, that long-haul walk by Jack Kirby, where he's indoctrinated into the Avengers, oh, yeah. is, is incredibly meaningful, and 100% Jack Kirby, oh, and that does change the Avengers, and Forever. I will combine it... And Marvel. I will combine it with the issue where the rest of the Avengers walk away, and Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and... And Scarlet Witch become Avengers. Avengers those, 16. Those, and, yeah, and by I the have way, that one. Just, those, Arlen, I'm I, going I, to I finish you. my I'm story. I'm just trying to interject those, a salient point those, about the artwork. George Russo horribly inked that Kirby Avengers 4 cover and inside. I think Russo was the most horrible inker of the Silver Age, and yet it's a memorable story that you remember despite the bad art. Vince Coletta loves him because people say he was worse than him. Yes. I'm just saying. And I, I just want to thank everyone for their input on this. I was hoping that y'all would add to my story and to my memories. <laughs> and, and now Did I that, not just add to it? Well, yeah. But, and Yes. And now, Alex, what's yours? So there, Good I luck forget, with that, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. I forget the, the issue number, but there was a, a Daredevil that Gene Colan and Stan Lee did. There was a blind black wait, man in Stan it. Lee? Do you know which wait, one I'm talking about? Okay. 
What was his name? Will, Willie or something? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. 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 And, and there, there was, was something so about that story and Daredevil kind of noticing his struggle. And, and then in this very humble, beautifully written story... And his issue with the Vietnam War and the last thing he saw. And then there was something about the way it ended where it's not like his sight was magically restored, but he found hope and purpose again at the end of the issue. And that truly moved me, that that story. And I remember even where I was when I read that and, and the last panel. It was beautifully done. And with Gene Collins' illustrations and the way Stan wrote it, that, okay, that, but again, that was, how do you know that's Stanley's story? The reason story? I know that is because Gene Colan was interviewed in Tom Field's book, and he does actually himself. Now, I'm not talking about Jack, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Dick Ayers. All right, that. Right. He does say that, yeah, me and Stan made beautiful stories together, that he loved the Stan's Marvel Method approach. I'm not saying that that's right for everyone else, but for Gene Colan and Stan Lee... Because of Gene Colan's testimony during those interviews, I do feel like Stan had a creative in that story. Stories in the Stan, best of Stan but Lee. time out a second. Even if Stan Lee said to Gene Colan, let's have a story where Daredevil meets a black guy and da 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 The fact that Colan drew up that story and told the story, he is entitled to at least a co-creator credit. And I agree. And I'm Everything not, and, and in I art, totally that's agree. what my author theory is I completely about. agree about Everything that, yeah. Everything in art because is drawn. affected me and... Who's to right. say? Maybe they, they jived together and but made this it. This is my but, point. But it was beautifully, but that, story. but that story was beautifully done. I mean, from well, the just first page quick to say, to oh, that was Stanley's story. The correct phrase maybe for all of these is storytellers as a joint thing. And I like always like that. It's not co-creators because nothing yeah. was created in that story. But to just say storytellers. That first Fantastic Four, number one, it says Stanley plus Jack Kirby. And that's all there was to it. And, and it makes sense if you think about it. I would prefer Kirby's name first, but that's me. Okay. You guys know, if you've been listening in the past year, that occasionally I can slide some things by. And by that, I mean me singing. But this time, I would like to let Arlen sing the theme from the Captain America cartoon, 1966, Gantry Lawrence. So, Arlen, will you play us out? When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. When he lends you a fight and the duel is due and the red and the white and the blue will come true. When Captain America throws his mighty shield. Yes. By the way, well lyrics by Stan Lee, I believe. Oh, strangely enough. How's that for him? That's an ironic ending. See, don't say I don't give Lee credit. Well, okay, we can't now, but... For that, I want to thank Alex. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. I want to thank Jim. I'm not speaking to anybody. Thanks. I know you're not. <laughs> but you just said something. And not to mention, or not only to mention, Arlen Schumer. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. And me, Bill Field, your honorable or honorary host, whichever you may think, Jim. I want to say thank you for coming to San Diego and thank you for listening to our comic book historian first live cast right here in the heart of comic book legends. And a hand for the crowd. And a hand. Thank you, Jim. And here we go. We will see you next time on the comic book historian podcast. Yeah.